It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey everyone, this is Eric and welcome to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network where we don't do the thinking for you. I'll be doing the intro today just because of stuff, but what I want to introduce is we're going to be talking about the uh, police issue, right, that we have in our country where, you know, there's this strong divide over the thin blue line and defending our police and and sort of the the movement around Black Lives Matter and the issues with police brutality um, and, you know, declining trust in policing. And amid this fight, you know, kind of back and forth, everyone loves making their grandstanding, uh, there emerge very few people trying to actually solve the problem directly. Um, you know, obviously, body cameras were tried, and, and that was good, and they've had some impact. But today, we're actually welcoming a guest named Lisa Broderick. And uh, Lisa has spent a lot of time as a successful business executive with GE Capital and Marshall Goldsmith. Um, she's been on ABC quite a bit uh, to talk about what's going on in the business world. She has a BA from Stanford and an MBA from Duke. Uh, And most importantly, she has started Police to Peace. So if you go to police2peace.com, the two being a number, so police2peace.com, you'll see her work where with Police to Peace, she is leading an initiative to just improve the relationship between police and their communities that seems to have had some great success so far. So we're very excited to have Lisa on the show, and uh, I'm going to be turning it over to that interview. Lisa, we are so excited to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming. Eric, thanks so much for being here. Xander, thank you. So Lisa, you're, you head up an organization called Police to Peace. And since it seems like that's going to be a good chunk of what we focus on in this conversation, would you mind at f- first just telling us what Police to Peace is, when it was founded, and how you got involved with it? Sure, of course. Well, Police to Peace is a not-for-profit organization And we're working to strengthen and revitalize communities by providing programs that change the way the police see themselves and how the community sees them. That's a big part of what we do. And there's a lot of components to that. But what we're finding is that if we do this, we can bring about better community engagement and lower the barrier between police and their communities. And today in America, that is a topic on many people's minds. It's one of the reasons that I was so excited to grab time with you today, Lisa, was specifically because almost amazingly, the, the idea of like of police and a relationship with the communities they're working in seems intractable, at least in the national political dialogue, when of course the at least the conventional, maybe like pre-punk rock or at least pre-anarchism notion of police was that they are these you know community service members that are here to serve the community and there's this kind of tight integration and now of course what we see in the national dialogue is okay like thin blue line you know people driving around probably on a pickup truck they've got that that little flag and mm-hmm. uh, it's there's this like entrenchment of you know trying to protect police from being attacked and you know and then of course there is there is the stuff kind of around Black Lives Matter. Not to say that this is necessarily an attack on police, but certainly part of the narrative in Black Lives Matter is that, you know, that that relationship is very is very frayed and that police participate in systemic oppression or violence of like underprivileged and underserved communities. 
And, you know, and, and that seems to be like such a break from this like conventional nostalgic notion we have of police. And one of the things we love to do on the show is go after it when we start to see these like seemingly intractable narratives emerge among tribes, we like to go after them. And so one of the things I'm so excited about is the fact that you're working on this. And I, you know, the, I think sort of first things first, what is the what's like the core underlying hypothesis of police to peace, sort of like what's the problem definition and what's the path to, you know, the path to achieving this highly integrated, you know, communities and police working together kind of system? Sure. Well, that's a lot to unpack, especially with this issue, which is so rich with so many points of view. The real truth is we obviously have an issue and the issue is so many fold and in in some ways it's systemic. So we have communities who feel underserved. They're unhappy with the way they're being policed. They feel that uh, every time there's an incident involving the police, uh, the, the community or the city or the police department only react afterwards. They were hoping that body cams would work, but sometimes that equipment isn't working. People are trying to see, feel, and believe that they are being heard in their expression of ill ease with how they're being policed. On the other side of the issue are the police themselves, who are buckling under the need for social services in cities which do not have infrastructure to support people in so many compromised positions. Mental mental illness, social services, all of the types of things we consider, very often law enforcement officers are put in positions for which they have no training And they're walking into domestic situations. They're walking into all kinds of situations. And the situations are heated and people are angry and disenfranchised. So what do you do? Well, we believe that this, just because it's a really serious problem in this country, we believe that it's, you can do something about it. It's, you should do nothing. You shouldn't do nothing just because it's a big problem. And what we've learned in our work with departments and with communities around the country is, we believe this is a training issue. We believe that with proper training on both sides, communities can heal. They can even heal from the worst types of tragedies. The officers themselves, who as Sylvia Moyer and Tempe here coined the phrase, the corrosive drip of the profession, the violence year after year dripping away at officers, which doesn't excuse inexcusable behavior, and it happens. With that said, so many are here to protect and serve for the greater good. So how do we heal that issue? As I said, we believe we can heal it with an ethical code of peace officer and with associated training for both sides intended to bring the community and law enforcement together to overcome biases, stereotypes, misperceptions, true perceptions, and have them see and build common ground. Dripping violence—that's that's some evocative language right there. Well, it's a well, it's a, the corrosive drip of all the violence around the country. Everybody feels it. It seems like in every every news cycle, there's another story of something, right? So it's dripping away at all of us. Does that not mean that we're good people? That we can be good to one another again? And it, yeah, I and I want to I want to reflect back the the notion just to make sure like I have my understanding of what that corrosive drip feels like because one of the as I've thought about this issue one of the facts that I I now have absolutely no capacity to cite so I'm going to throw out there hoping that I'm not full of it but Lisa hopefully if I am you'll let me know one of the one of the the things that I heard at some point was that the like in inner cities, the, you know, the bias behavior or the, the tendency of behavior of the police towards the black community versus the white community is actually consistent among black police and white police that, you know, it's not just white police using, you know, using more violent tactics against black community members. It's, it's black police as well. And when you said this drip of violence, one of the things that immediately struck me was that if I try to put myself in the shoes of these police officers in certain communities, sort of like their, their guard is up. They are maybe even afraid. Um, they're used to so much violence in that area. They're, they're exhausted by it. It's, it's ground them down. You know, they're worried for their own safety, that kind of thing. Is that what you're going for when you say sort of the drip of violence and the, and the impact it has on, on the police themselves? Well, I said the corrosive drip of the profession where they see so much 
not only do they see violence, they see horrible things, some things that most people don't see, things you see in war zones. We're seeing in this country mass shootings. So that to drip away at the, you know, at the moral and ethical code of individuals year after year after year is likely to happen. And I think we're seeing that more. With that said, in these communities, it's not just an inner city community or a community that is racially skewed in one way or another. It really has sort of become, for a variety of reasons, a bit of a standoff of us or, you know, one versus another, a group versus another group. And whenever you have that, the only way to solve that standoff is through communication, familiarity, and bringing those groups together. It sounds a bit of a Pollyanna-ish, but in truth, it's not. It is the true remedy for what ails us to bring these groups together. So let's talk about some of those communication methods that Please to Peace is using. As I understand it, one of the main, well, I guess I'll say communication methods again, one of the main ways that Police to Peace tries to influence rhetoric and change the narrative is by putting decals on the cars of police officers that says peace officers. I mean, the idea is reinforcing this idea that police are part of the community. Now, is that you've had a a trial run in the Richland Police Department and the Redlands Police Department. Is that sort of the main thrust of police to peace or does the organization do more? Has it done other interventions of a similar type or of a different type? It is doing more. Since introducing the decal program in our first department in late 2017, before we ever really existed, and then into 2018, we call that the Peace Officer Identity Program, we have created a slate of more profound programs. Because Peace Officer on a Car, what is that? Well, it is, uh, it's a suggestion for peace, number one. Number two, in this country, many law enforcement agencies and many states consider their officers, peace officers to this day, and that's the oath they take. So it's a very familiar term. Also, as used in, quite frankly, advertising, which is all around us, the use of wording affects people's perceptions and how they eventually react. So all of that led us to do a simple, non-threatening program of peace officer, which they already are on their vehicles. Then we decided to do a true academic research study involving randomized control trial and before and after surveys to gauge the change in community and officer sentiment. Once we did that, we realized that departments who would be open to that would be open to the slate of other more profound initiatives. And so today we are offering police training in cognitive resilience, which is a secular form of meditation mindfulness. We offer police community dialogues where we bring together police officers and community members in facilitated dialogues. We have community feedback loops, which are mechanisms, technology to feedback really really raw data to the police department about behavior that they can act on and create a continuous improvement loop. And then also we're just introducing trauma-informed curriculum for the schools. If we do all of that in a single community, that community will, be, will truly be transformed because we are coming in at all angles to do one thing, to support compassion and empathy between two groups which have essentially lost it for one another. There's, there's a lot there I want to come back to because certainly mindful meditation is something that I practice and fans of the show will know that Eric and I are both big stoicism fans and there are overlaps there between mindfulness and stoicism. And I definitely want to come to some of the methodology used in the randomized control trials done for the experiments. But just to clarify, it seems like in addition to the decal programs, the main activities that Police to Peace is involved in is is hosting these. Are, are they meetings that are hosted? Are they classroom? You, you mentioned curriculum. Are things taught? No, these are, these are all individual programs. And so which, which when we go into a community, we offer the community the, and the department the decal program first for a very simple reason. If they'll do that, they're likely to do other things. They are, that is a forward-thinking law enforcement leader who wants change in their community. They want greater community engagement. They want to lower the barriers between themselves and the, and the community for a couple of reasons. Number one, it'll be a safer community. Number two, safer communities are less expensive 
for everything in terms of all of the expenses related to a community. And number three, isn't peace what we all want? So I define peace in a very simple way, and that is it's the absence of violence, including structural violence. And structural violence has been coined to describe the institutions in which people, people's basic needs are not met. So poverty, structural poverty, structural racism, structural gender bias, all of these things contribute in a way that is violent against people. Nobody wants that. People want to live in peace in an absence of violence. So when we go into a community and provide what these are essentially training programs behind the Peace Officer Identity Program, we can bring that about in a community. One of the things I'm now thinking about as you, you know, as, as you kind of relate peace to the absence of violence, including the structural violence of, you know, in all these ways that are not necessarily like, you know, fist on person, like damage, you know, human damaging humans body directly, it would imply in my mind immediately that the, the peace officer adopts or takes on responsibility beyond, you know, prevention and mitigation of humans doing, you know, active acts of bad to each other. And certainly the, you know, in the community and certainly police doing active acts of bad to that community. And one of the I forget now I'm once again forgetting where I read it. It might have been in coming apart, but certainly there is this notion that I have that, you know, with with the breakdown of some other social structures that have existed in the past, in, in, in the case of coming apart, the hypothesis is churches. Police are being asked more and more by circumstance to get involved in in social disputes that would usually not be elevated to police in the past. So a good example is, you know, kind of a, a minor dem- I'm not going to word this necessarily well, but like a domestic fight that gets, you know, between, between two partners that, that gets a little bit out of hand. And normally that would be the kind of thing that's like some sort of community or spiritual leader can help them work out. And, and there's no one to go to, right. There's no one to escalate to except to the police, that kind of thing, or like a dispute between neighbors. And this is a long way of saying is the peace officer concept a does it involve an embracing of their role to do more than just keep you know violence and and vandalism and burglary and destruction from happening but also to serve the community in that way of providing support where it might not otherwise exist yes of course and it's defined in its name so we define peace officer as an officer who prevents conflicts if there is a conflict, help resolve it, diffuses situations, and aids the defenseless. Now, wouldn't every community want their law enforcement to do that? You would think so. What this embodies is that as an ethos, and then the training behind it to continue to connect that ethical code to the officer's behavior. So a lot of the training that comes in behind the peace officer decal program provides departments and their officers with the tools to self-regulate, to manage themselves, and to make good decisions. To They deal with stress, anxiety, and pressures, which they feel on the job, so that when they go into the community, they are fulfilling their ethos. Their behavior is connected to their own ethical code. And quite frankly, if they're officers with ethical codes, which are not that, then, and certainly they exist, that's an issue for police leadership. And uh, when found out, police leadership hopefully will deal with that. But that's not what we're doing here. We're connecting the officers who want to serve the greater good so that they are managing and self-regulating and coming to the community as an officer of the peace. So something that I appreciate about Police to Peace, having done a little research on it now, is there's a fair amount of information available on some of these decal interventions that you folks run. I'm, I'm going to kind of ask two questions in one here. It seems like a lot of this research is carried out by a group called BetaGov. And I'd be curious to hear sort of what BetaGov is, how you found them. And then secondly, how, how are you going about measuring success for these randomized control trials that you're trying with the decal or other programs? Sure. Well, BetaGov is a wonderful group. It is a public policy institute of NYU that funds and provides uh, research to civic institutions such as police departments and other civic agencies. 
Their mission, like ours, is to help policymakers and government agencies use research and rigorous research methods to develop solutions to their problems. We met them through uh, a mutual acquaintance. I'm a New Yorker. And uh, there in New York, we were introduced to one another and realized that our missions completely aligned, where we wanted to see if we could collect enough data to show that these types of programs and interventions might work. And they are a group who wanted to perform that data on behalf of the departments we're working with. So it was a perfect fit. And as far as, let's say you perform one of these decal interventions and you're trying to measure the positive impact that is having on the community and the police department. What counts as success here? How are you measuring success? What outcomes are you looking for? What, what changes in terms of actions are you hoping to affect? Well, we're using surveys, which is the best way to reach these populations, especially if they're very dispersed. Richland County was the sheriff and it is a quite a large County, including Columbia, South Carolina. And, uh, you know, almost 200,000 residents, several hundred cars, and almost 1,000 officers and other uh, law enforcement personnel. So the way to reach them was using surveys, because we can easily do that. What we'll do in a community that's that large is we would do, we would design a survey designed to capture sentiment about certain things. Do you feel your community is safe? Do you have a good relationship with the community? An officer might be asked, do you have a good relationship with uh, citizens? So these questions are asked ahead of time with no mention of any peace officer decals. And we try to get a statistically significant population. So we leave the survey open long enough for that. Then closing that survey, we roll out vehicles which have peace officer on them. We usually have a live event and make a bit of a media event out of it because it's good for everyone. And the first survey has been closed. And if you have a very large area, such as Richland County, you can do a randomized control trial, which means that Richland County was divided up randomly into districts where some districts saw the decals and others did not. Now, as it turns out, sort of hilariously, police cars drive, sheriff's cars drive around a lot. And so populations where, you know, which would have been removed from the decal exposure were exposed to them. But it didn't matter because afterwards we did a, a, a post decal survey. And we asked the same questions. But of course, we asked, did you see the peace officer decals? And the most interesting statistic that has come out of this research is populations who saw the decal before and after reported affirmatively, do you believe that people can change? Now, that's a very interesting question. It was sort of thrown in there as one of the questions we might ask. But the idea that people can change, officers can change, communities can change, was materially different for populations who saw the decal versus populations that did not. So as we go along, we rely on big data. There are 18,000 law enforcement departments around the country. And so that'll be a lot of data for us. Hopefully we'll be doing this for a very long time so that we can come across even more metrics which would show success. But with answers to questions like that, I think we're getting at something. One of, one of the things you've, you've done so well that we actually encourage in, that we encourage like very strongly in our own methodologies of how to talk politics with someone productively is you start from the base values that humans share, that Americans share, right? You know, for example, you said we, you know, of, do we want safer communities? Do we want more peaceful communities where people are experiencing less violence in varied ways? Do we want our officers who are, who are patrolling around these communities to participate positively and actively in this? And of course, the, the answer is universally yes. And of course, what, what happens for, for certain people who are, who, who kind of, fall on a certain side of, of the tribal spectrum is that there's this resistance because they say, well, if I say yes, then I have to agree with everything, everything you proposed. And so I'm not going to say yes. And it gets a bit weird, but, but if you, if you do, if you do a good enough job of saying, let's start from here and then let's figure out the best way to get there is super powerful. And you, you, you express it very well. So now that I've blown some sunshine at you, one of the questions I have is what is, 
when when you run into police leaders, departments, individuals, etc., that are not interested in this program, what seems to be the driver of that? Is there a different belief in how the world works? Is there a difference in priorities? Is there skepticism about the efficacy, etc.? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, all of the above, and it depends on who you're asking. If there are community members who don't like this, it would be that we seem to support the police in a way that is, uh, that is blind or Pollyanna-ish, mm. which is not true. We're doing training in order to connect the ethos to the behavior. I can't imagine a more valuable activity, and everybody would want that. If you ask police leaders, you know, law enforcement leaders, they may be entrenched. There may be all kinds of values that an individual or a department has, but the truth is we rely on younger and more diverse law enforcement leaders every day. Mm -hmm. When they come in and they come from communities which have typically not been in police leadership, they're open to these types of measures. And today, there is a social permission to try new things, especially when someone like that is in leadership. With that said, we find tremendous support among old leaders, older leaders that you would not initially believe could be so supportive. The sheriff of Richland County, Leon Lott, is an individual who stands in his truth of a department which runs on the values of peace officer. He called us when he learned about this program, and it's been enormously successful. Of course, that's why we have the report that we've shared with you. So there are police leaders all over the country. With that said, there will be a meta trend. There is a meta trend of younger, more diverse, more open thinking officers and leaders coming in who are will be willing to try something new. And if I have one job, it's to interest departments and police leadership yes. into trying something they might otherwise dismiss out of hand. Yes. The thing I was imagining, sort of the, the leading question there was that I, once again, I'm imagining quite a bit here. So I'm, I'm making some stuff up, trying to be, trying to be like empathetic to kind of every party involved in the old confrontational approach or the old confrontational, at least kind of accepted reality, right? Like there's, there's this accepted reality that we seem to have in America that like police and the communities they're policing need to be in confrontation and trying to empathize with, with each of the parties involved. One of the things I imagine some of the police may feel is that, look, man, this is war, right? There are like drug gangs and, and other people that are wreaking havoc on, on the city and, and we have to aggressively go after them. And, and that aggression is required for our own safety and the safety of the community, et cetera. And one of the, that, that's that being a leading question. What I'm also assuming is that if there are good, like hard line lagging indicators of success, you know, improvements in more visibly violent activity, improvements in 
you know, cooperation and even like, you know, information sharing by the community with the police to be able to go find, you know, go find the like the more violent and dangerous elements in that community, et cetera, is, you know, that that there would be it would be much easier to bring the skeptics over. And so the question I have for you is beyond the beyond the initial what I don't what I actually don't know that Xander knows a little bit better because he read deeper into this is how early some of this work has been done or how long some of this work has been done. And so are there yet lagging indicators of success beyond the surveys that say in the communities that have adopted this, not only do we see sentiment changing in the surveys, but we also see either behaviors changing or we see success in some of the key you know, key performance indicators or key goals of a policing unit of, you know, lowered crime rates, even, or, you know, lower recidivism or et cetera in the area? Well, we, we collect data and we're really just starting out. So when, when we have one research study and then another and another, we're adding the data together. A couple of years is not a long time when each study in itself six or nine months just of itself. And that's the first phase. So the next step will absolutely be longer term crime studies. And there actually is a city in California, I won't name them, who is considering convening a new police force only called peace officers from the start where we will be doing, we will intend to do long term crime studies based on how that impacts the community. So the opportunity is definitely there. This is about collecting information and in collect, just asking the questions and collecting the information. People are different. It changes them. That's the whole point. Can the use of words, generally speaking, alter perceptions and change hearts and ultimately minds? That's the thesis, and it'll take years to prove. So something I know I definitely wanted to ask was whether in addition to the two police departments that you have publicly discussed on your website, uh, Bridgelands and Redlands, whether or not you have more either interventions or programs set up with more police departments. It seems like from what you just said, you're kind of implying, yes, there are more that are currently lined up. Oh, yes, many more. The issue really is we're we're trying to get clean data for each of the studies, right? So with that said, we do not introduce any idea of peace officer into any community ahead of time. So we actually can't talk about all of them that are in planning stages. Otherwise, they would know it's them. I will say that we're finishing up in Gonzales, California. Right. We just finished up in Ashland, Oregon, complete. We finished up the time one survey in Greenfield, California. So now the decals are being announced, which means we're past the time that we could talk about, that we would not be able to talk about peace officers. So around the country, there are about 10 in the pre-program pre-program and planning stages, and 10 more after that. So we're, we're getting the word out. We are generally viral to communities from one chief or sheriff to another who had a good experience or who heard, who heard something like this and wanted to try it, or mayors are talking to one another, and they're bringing us into their communities and putting it in front of law enforcement leadership and saying, you know, maybe it's time to try this. So I really appreciate the the fact that police to peace focuses on this statistical integrity and is conducting these experiments in a, in a methodical way. I kind of want to step back and just ask you for your perspective, having now gone through this process a couple of times, because a minute ago you mentioned something about how the new generation of leaders and police forces across the country are maybe leading to a slight change in the mindset. So what I'm curious is, does it seem to you like some of the tensions that have been made painfully aware in the media between police, police forces and communities, such as like with the Ferguson riot, do you feel like that is a deep structural issue or something that is represented perhaps more accurately by a generational gap that's likely to change with time or, or is it deeper than that? Well, when you look at the data, of course, any population is a bell-shaped curve. So it may be structural in some places. It may be a single leader in others. It's not a homogenous population, the police, the law enforcement, by any stretch. So you have different department, departments reacting in different ways. You have, some, you have missteps in departments. You have outright behavior that should not be tolerated, for sure. 
So we see the full gamut. With that said, there are meta trends. And of course, the meta trend is younger and more diverse and by almost by definition, more able to consider things that might otherwise have been dismissed out of hand. So we're going to ride that wave right into the departments, helping departments one at a time. Since we're viral from one department to another, we are introduced to another department and then another so that we roll out over the country among departments who would consider this. So I'm going to do a hard pivot now based on a homophone of words you just said, meta trends. Meta trends. I love the word meta. And for folks who do mindfulness med- meditation, they might know that meta is also a word that I don't know in what language it is, but it, it basically refers to loving kindness meditation. And that's the idea that as you focus on the present, you are explicitly wishing for good things to happen to people that you care about and love and love dearly. And the idea is over time, that circle of care expands and, and who you are attempting to feel love for also expands. Now, I'm curious because earlier you mentioned mindfulness meditation as one of the programs held in some of Please to Pieces programs, but I also see on your LinkedIn page that you're involved in an organization called The Meditation Effect. So how does mindfulness play in both to Police to Pieces mission and what's your relationship with meditation? My, I am a meditator for 30 years. I became a, a, an Indian mantra meditator in my 20s. And I have a personality trait, I guess you would call it. And that is if I think something will help me, I will do it every day forever in the same way, which makes me a really good meditation student. So 30 years later, I have been practicing Indian mantra meditation. Of course, Buddhism is the nephew of India. So uh, mindfulness meditation, it can be a more secular version of Indian meditation. Of course, mindfulness meditation, as you've mentioned, is focusing on the present. What, is tr- what truly interested me about meditation per se related to this was that it was being used in first responder situations by agencies and, in fact, entire groups, such as government groups, in order to help officers of all kinds make wiser, more effective decisions in the field and be more resilient. So this is about better self-regulation, which the theory with mindfulness meditation is that it can be taught. It can be taught to individuals in high-stress environments. And what really interested me was the work of Major General Michael Piott, who's the Director of Army Operations, who has been a big proponent of mindfulness meditation for the Army. Hmm. In fact, he was quoted as saying, you might be embarrassed at this, compassion is more powerful than bullets. That's a good line. So when you have the army looking at something and doing long-term studies on big flights of people in order to learn whether cognitive control can oversee behavior, whether it can regulate, whether, again, you can teach the tools so that the goals officers have for themselves, their ethical codes and their views of right and wrong always align with their behavior, you have a better army and you have a better law enforcement in the United States. That, those are the mindfulness practices that we are bringing in to these police departments and we're only part of a movement. Movement is, is well on its way within departments around the country. We're on the band because if that doesn't support the idea of peace officer, I don't know what does. It's in perfect alignment. So one of the things I'm curious about is assuming that the lagging indicators end up being positive, which, you know, obviously there are, there are these positive leading indicators that we would see as key factors in improving top line metrics in the job of the police, which is having a better relationship, reducing you know, conflict with communities and uh, ultimately improving, you know, improving crime and other outcomes. So assuming we see that, what is the, what do you see as the barrier to, you know, nationwide, the, you know, the different departments of, you know, the different, the different police departments and precincts making a move towards a, an approach methodology, either equal to or, or similar to this, in order to have the kind of impact that, you know, sort of, as you said earlier, it would seem everyone would want. Well, getting the word out, 
policing is, uh, you know, like the army. It is, uh, it's a quite stratified environment in many ways. And things are done in certain ways. To introduce something new is always a challenge. Plus, police leadership are often inundated with offers to do things. So our, our approach, which is very low-key, which is the viral approach, where one leader calls another leader, calls another, calls another, and we go virally around the country. Plus, getting the word out in programs such as this and in other sorts of media and working with other groups who are in these various movements, the mindfulness meditation movement for police, restorative justice, transformative justice, all of these movements, different groups are taking their part and we're joining with them until ultimately, hopefully one day, there'll be a critical mass where this will be as accepted as something we thought was, was uh, unattainable 10 or 20 years ago. So watching one of your videos on Police to Pieces website of a speech you gave, something that stuck out to me is you said at one point that, and I forget which intervention in particular it was, but it was one of the decal ones, that there is absolutely no cost to the department, state, or federal government. So I'm curious where the funding comes from, and it seems like that maybe the Peace Development Fund, and what is the Peace Development Fund? Well, it doesn't come from the Peace Development Fund per se. We're a not-for-profit corporation, and Peace Development Fund is a group based in Amherst, Massachusetts, which was formed in order to further peace-related projects such as ours as an umbrella organization, a sponsoring organization that's a 501c3. And so in so doing, they allow us to do our good work without a lot of paperwork, even though we are a not-for-profit corporation, and we allow them to donations of grant money in particular are directed to them for processing. So we are in the milieu of groups which would be supported by peace-desiring organizations. We have private grant makers who, are, who grant monies to us. Typically, we don't get individual smaller donations because we do get much larger grants. And then we get project grants for individual cities. So an entire city might be supported in its rollout of one or several or all of our programs at once with a single underwriting grant. I'm going to I'm going to jump around a little bit as well. One of the things that I think Xander and I are both curious about is you know, your background is in is in business and uh, we couldn't at least find the background in either, you know, social work or justice work or legal work or et cetera, where, you know, one would expect one would normally have a kind of substantial exposure to this issue and, and thereby gain inspiration, of course, by what we're seeing on the ground. So what what is the, you know, can you tell us a little bit about your path towards, one, wanting to, you know, devote so much of your effort to make an impact on the space, and then two, what moved you towards, you know what I want to try? I want to try decals on cars. Right. Well, that is the story of the, all of the events that come together in a lifetime where you wake up one moment and you say, oh, you know, this is something that I need to do. I had been working in technology out of Silicon Valley since, since I learned to meditate, you know, back in my 20s and had always been involved with companies and been interested in the use and application of technology as it relates to behavior. When you think about the personal computer, it's not just a consumer electronics device. It has shifted behavior in a mass way that the, the country and the world will never be the same. The iPhone, all of these technologies are shifting behavior. And I just ended up with them because I was from Silicon Valley and I was from Stanford. That's what we did in Silicon Valley. We created technologies and they had a big impact on, on social behavior. So with that as a background, I happened to be living and working in a city in Jacksonville, Florida in 2017. And I used to like to go to the beach after work. It was lovely and I, it was always warm. Jacksonville is a lovely place. So I was walking along the beach one day and this is true, this happened. I had a sort of vision or an inspiration that they say that flash of insight that changes your life forever. A police vehicle came on the beach, as I guess they sometimes do. It seemed a little unusual, but it was able to. And as it was on the beach, it, it, I imagined or saw the words peace officer on the vehicle in that moment. And I froze in time because a question occurred to me, why am I seeing this now? 
what does this have to do with me? And clearly this is not normal, right? I'm an economist by training. I have a background in data and scientific approaches. This was the opposite of that. With that said, I'm a meditator. So my mind is open to a lot of things happening. I went back to my office and I called a friend who was a constitutional attorney who told me, you know, they're all peace officers. I don't know why they all don't do that. And with those words and what I had seen, my life changed forever. It did. I knew what was mine to do because if I didn't do this, who would? Mm. And so I also had a background in starting companies. I now help small companies grow all around the country and the world, which I've been doing since my days in Silicon Valley. I applied that same expertise to this project to allow us to roll out an efficacy metrics-based program, which we're not just making claims, we're going to prove it, where we're doing things in a digestible way that's not going to ruffle a lot of feathers, right? We want to do things that people and say things in people in ways that people can understand and appreciate while respecting their views. And there are a lot of different views. Quite frankly, anytime you take a leadership position in a movement, there will be detractors. There will be all kinds of feedback, some of it quite unpleasant, and some of it, you know, which we should take into consideration and others just considering people are angry about the issue, whatever issue it is. With that said, I knew I could do it. And I've applied all of those skills and the body of work in a lifetime to this because I had that transformational moment. That's our intention, because quite frankly, the reason we have gone to this vitriolic state in this country is that people are taking positions, as you've mentioned, in tribalism, and they're not listening to another and they're not hearing something that they might consider because people aren't people are dismissing them, their views on both sides. Preaching to the choir. This is what we're all about on Reconsider. Yeah. Awesome. We don't. We're very careful to not do that because we're not going to get anywhere. I think that's, and I think that's such a powerful insight right there that the, one of the things I think we are right now, I don't know if we've been better at it before, but right now, not really good at it as a country is realizing that if you want someone to change, it actually turns out that looking at them in the eye and saying you're scum and terrible (laughs) and everything about you is deplorable and bad. Now that I've said that I have an idea for how you could be different and like, it just doesn't work. Right. And, and, and so no matter what story you've decided to tell the, the approach is starting off with, I condemn you to the depths of your heart. And and now that I've done that, I don't understand why you don't want to listen to the rest of what I have to say. I, I assume that you even now, now maybe I'm, I'm, you know, I'm fishing a little bit here, but I assume that you have received criticism from some corners for not doing your public duty of condemning or, or criticizing the police as one of your steps. Well, one or the other group. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So the funny, it's funny to think about, imagine walking into your spouse and saying, well, you just said you're scum and here's how you change. How would that go? Well, (laughs) of course, people don't respond to that (laughs) and they're not responding to it here. So, you know, other people's, and this is a country and we have the first amendment. People can say what they want to say. With that said, for us, for us to take a side rather than build bridges is not going to help anyone. And we don't do that. We are in the dialogues, in the training, in the feedback, in the curriculum, and of course, in the peace officer ethos. We're doing everything but that. And little by little, minds and hearts are shifting. That is our hope. We're seeing it now, just the little glimmer that we could change as a country. My dream, I have a dream, is that we do shift this as a country. This can be done. This is not an insurmountable problem. This is a training problem and a bridge building problem where we're not coming from vitriol. We're coming from compassion, which in Latin, of course, means with suffering. So Lisa, this has been a really wonderful conversation. And I think one thing that both Eric and I appreciate about your approach is that you're not you know, like you just said, stepping up to someone and approaching them in vitriol, which has almost become like our country's national political pastime. And it's just reflected everywhere from 
the way pundits often, not always, but often discuss the news to with these presidential debates, which I am just not a fan of. But all that aside, I just wanted to to ask if folks want to learn more about your initiative, Police to Peace, where would they go? How would they get involved? What can they do to help out? Well, thank you for asking, Xander. We, of course, are online, policetopeace.com, a website which contains some of these reports and the ability to contact us and me in particular. We, of course, have social media handles on all the major social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Police to Peace. And uh, we are out in the media doing these various programs. What I would encourage listeners to do, if they believe that there is an ear within their community who would listen to this, send us an email. Because without exception, we will come into your community completely free of charge and offer any of these programs. And where would they send that email? They would send that. That is from the website, info at police2peace.com. Come by, get a copy of it. Write to me. It goes to the team as well where any community can have this. And we have had communities that have three police cars. We have communities that have 800 (laughs) police cars. It doesn't matter. Marshals, sheriffs, police chiefs, you name it. It's all the same in terms of what a peace officer ethos is and what a community might need in terms of, quite frankly, healing and strengthening and revitalization. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today on Reconsider. It's been a blast. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, as much as as much as this is a you know a sober in many ways a sober topic, I think the reason Xander and I are using words like a blast is that it is so it is so rare and so refreshing and so I don't know just hopeful right to have the kind of pleasure of being able to learn from someone who is so effectively standing out of the vitriolic, you know, kind of cross tribal scream fest and, and successfully saying, you know what? I just, I I don't care about the fight. I just want to make a difference and make it better and, and winning at it. And so thank you for everything that you do. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Xander. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.